1: So here we are, this is the 8th talk on the book of Revelation. This is, uh, we are today November 8th and in the Maronite uh, calendar this is the feast of Saint Michael the Archangel. Um, and I think the following, the following uh, quotation from Hebrews 10 which is part of our reading today in the Maronite liturgy is fitting. For if we willfully persist in sin after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's taken from St. Paul, Hebrews 10, which is particularly fitting for what we're going to be uh, reading tonight. Tonight we're going to be covering two of the letters, so we've covered the first two letters, and tonight I am hoping to cover two more. I'm not very optimistic, but we'll see how it goes. I'd like to say a word about, uh, about uh, God being love. Um, you hear me quite often talk about God, about his judgment, about his holiness, and I can come across as though... Um, All I want to emphasize is his justice, his judgment, his holiness, and forget about his love. If it was up to me, if I was doing a Bible study for myself, I would be studying the Song of Songs. It's one of my favorite books. And we might actually do that right after the book of Revelation. It would be very fitting. Um, I have no doubt about God's love. I have no doubt about his mercy. I am not here to propose to you a God who is all about justice and all about holiness, not about love. But at the same time, I do have a sense that the times we live in have veered so much towards considering God as love that they've actually deformed our understanding of who God is. That's why you see me insisting really on that. I am emphasizing one aspect because of the need. If if you were Jansenists of the 19th century, um, meaning you you were living in in, in, in the fear of a wrathful God day in, day out, I'd be actually emphasizing the exact opposite. So it is based on the need that we have today to correct our view of who God is. That's all. I'll repeat it again, and it's worth repeating, especially because the book of Revelation is not so much about God's love. I mean, not the way we conceive of his love. It is really about his love. Truly, but not the way we think love is. So that's where, um, you'll hear me repeating this uh, quite sometimes. I'm going to give you another quote which I thought was very opportune. This is from uh, Blessed John the 23rd. Uh As he addressed, the, uh, it's taken from his address for the opening of the Second Vatican Council. I think this is very opportune for our study tonight. Discerning the signs of the times, an important theme of the Second Vatican Council. In the daily exercise of our apostolic ministry, we are often offended when we learn what certain people are saying who are filled with religious zeal, yet lack correct judgment and level-headedness in their way of seeing things. They see only ruins and calamities in society's present situation. They are used to saying that our day and age has worsened profoundly in comparison with past centuries. They behave as if history, which is the teacher of life, had nothing to teach them, and as if at at the time of past councils, everything had been perfect, where Christian doctrine, customs, and the Church's just freedom were concerned. It seems to us that we must state our complete disagreement with the prophets of misfortune, who always announce catastrophes as if the world were close to its end. In the present course of events, when society seems to be at a turning point, it is better to acknowledge the mysterious plans of divine providence which, through the succession of times and the work of human beings and most of the time against all expectations, reach their goal and arrange everything with wisdom for the good of the church. I repeat, for the good of the church. Even the events that are in opposition of it. Blessed John twenty third. I I could not have said it any better. That is my personal view. I mean, he said it perfectly. That's where I stand. As Catholics, you're not allowed to be pessimistic. Can't be Catholic and pessimistic. Can't go together. Okay? Very good. So with that in mind let us then turn to chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. We're now reading the letter that the Lord is addressing to the city of Pergamum. Beginning with verse 12 And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write The words of him who has the sharp two edged sword I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols, And practice immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except him who receives it. Pergamum is located, I'd say, about 30 to 40 miles north of uh, Smyrna. At the end of the series, I'll give you a map and a summary of, um, of uh, this, this part of the talk that shows you all the cities and how they really form a postal route. in in the province of Asia it was the capital of Asia remember Asia in this sense is the province of Asia which is part of the Roman Empire we're not talking about the entire continent of Asia as we know it today it was the capital of Asia and Pergamum was impressive as a city Pliny who was a historian called it by far the most distinguished city of Asia and its very name in Greek means citadel. Um, under Eumenes U- II, Pergamum became the finest flower of the Hellenistic civilization. It had a library with more than 200 volume, 200,000 volumes. I didn't cover that last time, did I? No, no. Okay, good. I'm just having a sense of deja vu. I've been studying this for so much that I'm, <laughs> so I'm sometimes wondering if I'm repeating myself. All right. So it had a library of 200,000 volumes. So again, I hope that these facts are changing your view on the ancient time. We're not talking about people living in huts. They were living in very refined cities. With, of course, some of the modern comfort that we have, some of that was lacking. But in terms of education, in terms of sophistication, in terms of art and culture, they had it all. They had what we have today. Legend has it that parchment was invented there when the supply of papyrus from Egypt was cut off in a reprisal for Eumenes' attempt to lure a famous librarian by the name of Aristophanes away from Alexandria. So, you know, commercial spying was going on there back then as it is today. You know, the guy wanted to get that, this very famous librarian over and then there was an embargo on papyrus and apparently they invented parchment. The most spectacular aspect of the city was the upper terrace of the citadel. So think of the city as being constructed around a citadel, which, if you were to look away, or if you were to look from afar, would look like a throne. And that citadel was the most spectacular aspect of the the city of Pergamon. It had the sacred and royal buildings, and in particular, the great altar of Zeus. And you know, Zeus is the chief god in a Roman a Roman pantheon that jutted out near the top of the mountain and it kind of overlooked the whole city so it's a very uh, impressive sight to see religion fl- flourished in Pergamum it was the center for four of the most important pagan cults of the day Zeus, Athens the patron goddess Dionysus and Asclepius, who was designed Soter, which means savior, and Asclepius' symbol was the serpent. The shrine of Asclepius, the god of healing, attracted people from all over the world. And then, for instance, Galen, who was one of the most famous physicians of ancient times, studied there. So not only was it a religious center, it was a center of learning, it was also a center of science. And there, Satan had his throne.
0: Hmm.
1: Can somebody spell university? Pergamum was the official center in Asia for the imperial cult. Remember, we talked about the imperial cult. The Roman emperors considered themselves to be gods, and temples were built in their honor, where you would go and offer incense to, for the emperor. And it was the center for imperial cult. Uh, For instance, in 29 B.C., Augustus granted permission for a temple to be er erected in Pergamum to the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma. And so therefore, given the circumstances, you can imagine how the, the church in Pergamum was going to clash with religion and with science. Both. Why? Because science was closely tied to Askelpios, Askelpios, the serpent god. So the risen Christ knows where they live, basically, where Satan sits enthroned. Now, that doesn't doesn't mean... Let's, let's make sure we understand this. It does not mean that Pergamum was the only city where Satan was enthroned. It's one of his thrones. It's one of an important place where, effectively... The worship that all that is not God was held in a very strong way. Not only in a strong way, but even in an official way. In its official capacity, Rome effectively worshipped Satan. That's what we're talking about. So the actual shape of the city hill would appear as a giant throne towering above the plain so that as Rome had become the center of Satan's activity in the West, So Pergamum had become his throne in Asia, in the province of Asia. It is is interesting to point that under Diocletian, the emperor Diocletian, Christian stone cutters from Rome, working in the quarries of Pannonia, refused to carve an image of Asculapius, Latin designation of Asclepius, and consequently were put to death for being followers of Antipas of Pergamum. So that particular um, martyr, Antipas, we know very little about him, had followers already in Rome where these people were working in the quarries and those quarries were basically cutting rocks where you would carve the image of the serpent god. And because they refused to do so, to carve his image, apparently these people knew their, their faith fairly well. You shall not make image of false gods, right? second commandment, or first commandment, I'm sorry, the second part of it, I am I'm your only God. Because of that, they were also put to death. As I said, little is known of this early martyr Antipas. His name is found uh, in a third century inscription of Pergamum, and he's mentioned by Tertullian. What is really noteworthy is that, in the, in, in, is that he gets the title of our Lord in Revelation 1.5, Jesus calls himself the faithful witness, and he calls Antipas the faithful witness. Eusebius mentions later martyrs in Pergamum as St. Carpus, St. Papilus, and St. Agathon-like. Those were also martyred in Pergamum. So there were a whole series of martyrs who died in the city, precisely because of its opposition to um, the Christian faith. Now, what is the situation in Rome? I mean... I, in Pergamon, you can see that, this, that the church is in a really difficult position. Here you have a city, this is the imperial city, with four thriving temples, four beautiful temples, and um, a city where everything revolves really around the cult of the em- emperor and the cult of Zeus. And you're a Christian living in this city. Which means you have dealings, you have business, you have workings, you you meet people on the street, people you talk to, your neighbors, who do not share your faith. What is a Christian to do? So the Lord then tells them what exactly? I know where you dwell. Meaning, it is not hidden from me. Don't bring this as an excuse. I know you, you dwell there. What does that mean, I know? I mean, it means I want you there. Not only it's the fact that it's known from me, it's also part of my my, my divine will for you to be there. I know where you dwell, where Satan has his throne. You hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, was killed. Meaning that when the persecution took place, you did not deny my faith. So you stood fast, you hold fast to believing in me, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Balaam, read that in, in Numbers, is a prophet of God. And Balaam was asked by Balak to come forth and to curse Israel. He wanted to pay him money. He basically he wanted to buy his prophetic talent. So Balaam showed up and by four times blessed Israel. He couldn't curse them because he could only say what the Lord wanted him to say. So it's important to keep Balaam in mind because it helps us understand how even if you have corrupt bishops or corrupt priests or even if you have people in the hierarchy who are not doing God's will, God's will still is done. They may not profit from it. They may not receive any glory, but his will is still done. And so finding that he could not use prophecy to... Break Israel. Balaam, therefore, switched from theology to morality. He advised Balak, the king, send your women over and let them ensnare the Israelite men and let them, therefore, worship your gods. And any time you hear worship of false gods, you need to think about it not in in a dry way. Don't think of worship of false gods as a bunch of people sitting in, in a church and then, you know, humming some hymns or going, um, or, you know, tickling their toes. That, n- no. Always think of it as... You, you'd be better off thinking of it as a um, a party. You know those bars where people go half-naked, and they dance, and they do all the crazy stuff, that is closer to pagan worship than anything else you have in mind. Or a rock concert. That would be a good example, too, of what we're talking about. It is something that moves the senses in a very deep and profound and powerful way. Pagan worship was not dull. You understand that? It was very pleasurable. You must understand this so you can understand why so many people would do it. People were not crazy. They were not stupid either. So, think of it this way. And that's what he advised, Balaam advised Balaam to do. And it worked. These women came in and then the men fell for it. And they followed them, and they went and I did the, the, you know, the usual stuff. And in fact, one of them, one of those men, took one of those women and went into the tent right in front of Aaron and Moses, who were crying. They couldn't do anything. So what is going on here is the following. Imagine the situation. The church is in Pergamum. Now, you, there are two things you can do. You can either hold fast to the teachings and commandments of the church or you could make it easy on yourself. So looming large behind all of this is what? The Council of Jerusalem. You must keep the Council of Jerusalem in mind. What happened to the Council of Jerusalem? If we turn to Acts chapter 15, the question came up, should we accept the Gentiles as full-fledged members of the church? Or, should we require them to be circumcised first? Meaning, do they have to go through the whole Jewish cycle? Must Gentiles come and worship at the temple and offer sacrifice and go through all the Jewish feasts like the Christian of Jewish background were doing? Peter, stood up and spoke. The first infallible declaration of a pope. And he said, no. They will be accepted, and circumcision is not required. Then, James, who was Bishop of Jerusalem, stood up and said the following. That's the key. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the pollutions of idols from unchastity and from what is strangled and from blood. Right? 15, verse 19 and following. These things, pollutions of idols, unchastity, what is strangled and blood, are part of pagan worship. That now is a council of the church. The church has spoken. The church has set forth commandments for the faithful to follow. That's what's at stake here. God, The Lord is not coming over to Pergamum to tell them about the fact that they are not converting the pagans, that they have not overthrown Satan, that they were not able to overtake the city council and make political gains. None of that is his concern. What is his concern is precisely the fact that there are those among the church member who decided that they would be better off making it easy on themselves a little bit. They were unwilling to obey the teaching of the church when it came to those things. And that's what Christ was after. Likewise, you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So the Nicolaitans were covered last week. They also hold similar views. We call them antinomians, meaning against the law. The notion that we're saved by grace. If I'm saved by grace, the law is not necessary. Therefore, I can compromise. You see, in every age of the church following what blessed uh, John 23 said, when a council takes place and a council makes teachings or a declaration comes from the church, typically what you will find is that it stirs things up in the church. And there are some members of the church that simply don't want to bind themselves in their conscience by the teaching of the church because from the beginning they either do not believe in the authority of the church or simply don't want to and then they stir up things it's an ongoing struggle it is part of the life of the church it's an ongoing struggle he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to him who conquers I will give some of the hidden manna and it will give him a white stone with which no one accepts him no, with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, the white stone has a dozen or more interpretations. Um, ancient jurors, for instance, would signify innocence by throwing a white pebble in a jar. A Tharsian custom marked every good day by a white stone. According to the rabbinic lore, precious stones fell from heaven with the manna. Reference could be to a stone in a breastplate breastplate of the high priest. But it seems best to take the white stone as a tessera that served as a token of admission in a banquet. And that is the the explanation that I like best. In order for you to be admitted in a banquet, you had a small white slab that you presented. And since later in Revelation, there will be a talk of the, 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 the heavenly banquet, I think that fits. I'd like also to to make a point of that new name. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except him who receives it. The name that you carry today is not your real name. Your real name defines who you are in an essential way. The real name of you says who you are. Everything about you is in your real name. Angels, our angels, know their real name. But their real name is incommunicable to us. They cannot communicate their real name to us. Because we, today, cannot understand their glory. So your real name is the name of your glory. It is the name that effectively, presents, sums up, explains, reveals your glory. That name will be given to each one of us when we enter heaven. And it is only known by us in the sense that only in the union between the soul and Christ do we really fully understand all that is to be known about that name. That name summarizes the union of Christ and the soul. It does not mean, though, that this name needs to be hidden or remain secret. For Christ says that the just in heaven will shine like the sun. But it it is a name that will be in your possession, and you will be free to reveal it or to reveal part of it or to reveal as much as you want to reveal of it to whomever you want to. That is an essential part, an essential aspect of the glory of the just. It is also said that at the time of our judgment, not only will we know about all the sins that we have committed and the just judgment that we ought we to receive to them, and not only will we find out about the real communion of the saints because the prayers of others will, there, will, be, will be there to help us, chiefly among them, of course, the, the Blessed Virgin Mary, but we will also know about that real name that God had in mind for us that we may not receive because we simply did not live according to his plan. So, when, when we say that God calls you by your name, I've called you by your name, as he says in Isaiah, he doesn't necessarily mean the name that you know of yourself today. I called you by your name means I called you by who you really are. Because I know who you really are. You are a mystery to yourself. You don't know where you're going. You don't know how far you have to go, but I do. I know. And it is only in entering in this conversation with God that God reveals ourselves to ourselves. That's why St. Augustine said it with such profundity Lord, Let me know myself that I may know thee. And he didn't mean it psychologically. He meant it theologically. Because at the end of the day, we're not psychological beings. We're theological beings. The hidden manna is, of course, a reference to the Eucharist. Uh, The manna is, is the food that came down from heaven, as you know, during Exodus. And it is a symbol, a reference to the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the hidden manna because... Christ, who is the real manna, as he said himself in the book of John, book of St. John, I am the real manna that comes from heaven, is hidden under the appearance of bread and wine. And so effectively what he's promising them, those who will be um, faithful to him, he, they will receive the hidden manna. But that, it kind, it, it kind of poses a little challenge for us because, well, Weren't they receiving the manna anyhow? I mean, weren't these Christians going to church and breaking the bread? They were. So why is it that he's promising them the hidden manna? Well, you see, that goes all the way to the fact that you may receive the sacrament, but the sacrament may pass through you and leave you unchanged. You may receive the Holy Eucharist every day of your life and still go to hell. Because for the sacrament to operate on you, you have to be willing. You have to be receptive. And you can't be receptive if you are in opposition to the teachings of the church. If you are unwilling to obey the church, you, you basically say you're not going to receive that hidden manna. You don't want it. It will do you no good. In fact, it will do you harm. So when he says, I will give the hidden manna, he really means that when you will receive me in a hidden manna, I will let my graces live in you. That's the promise I make. They will transform you. That's the transforming power of the Eucharist. Because the flip side of what I just said is that even if I am obe- obedient to the church, and even if I am praying all day long, and even if I'm you know, taking care of all the poor in the world, none of that can get me to heaven. I need the transforming power of Christ in my life. So I need both. I need to be receptive, but he has to come to me. That's the hidden manna. Alright, let's move to Thyatira. Verse 18 in chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I give her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her doings, and I will strike her children dead. And and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Theatra, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay upon you any other burden, Only hold fast what you have until I come. He who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, I will give him power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received power from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." It is interesting that the longest and in in some sense the most difficult of the seven letters is addressed to the least known, the least important, and the least remarkable of all the cities. Theatra was founded by Seleucus I as a military outpost to guard one of the approaches to his empire. Since it was on the plain and possessed no natural fortification it really had to rely on the strength and the spirit of its soldier citizens to be able to hold back the enemy eventually it was it fell to the Romans in 190 BC and became part of the province of Asia with the stability that the Roman Empire brought given that it was in the middle of the plain the disadvantage became an advantage because it was easy, easy to access Theatra, therefore manufacturing and marketing grew. It became a commercial center and a wealthy one. Now, the workers in Theatra were organized as guilds. And uh, ancient inscriptions tell us of a a large number of these trade guilds. Wool workers, linen workers, markers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smith. And in Acts, chapter 16, verse 14 and following, we meet a woman named Lydia, who was a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, and she was converted by Paul. The divine guardian of the city was the god Tirimnos. On coins is portrayed a street a horse with a battle axe on his shoulder. He was also identified with the sun god Apollo. This identification is important because the worship of Apollo was merged with the emperor worship. So that they were both acclaimed as the sons of God. For instance, the, the son of Domitian, the emperor, the Roman emperor, died in 83 AD, was portrayed as sitting on a globe surrounded by seven stars. So the guilds were very powerful. Think of them as, essentially, as unions. Workers belonged to those guilds, and the guilds were powerful. Now, the guilds were about what? selling and buying. In order to sell and buy, you have to give the emperor his due. Therefore, it was required that every member, every guild member, (coughs) offers incense to the emperor. Here we go again. You're a Christian, you're a worker, you may be a wool worker, a bronze smith, or what have you, and you want to work. Well, you have a problem. There is a direct effect on your livelihood and that of your family. What are you to do? How do you manage that? Well, there was a woman in that church who seemed to have some importance. She's called Jezebel. The reason why she's called Jezebel is, of course, because it is of course, in relation to the Jezebel that is found in the book of Kings. Um, we we'll read of the wicked queen, who was the wife of Ahab, in the first book of Kings, chapter sixteen, verse 29 and following, and the second book of Kings. Chapter 9, um, verse 13, 30 and following. Jezebel managed to get the Israelites, so the, 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 the Jews, to worship Baal. And again, it doesn't matter what god you pick, what deity you're going to pick, whether it's Baal or Zeus or Apollo or whatever, or an Egyptian god, they all follow the same rule. They all will give you money, sex, and power in return to your soul. Right? So what is the only difference between the ancient and us today? The only difference is that back then, before they had a party, and they went dancing, they prayed. They recognized the connection between what they're doing and a given God. But we today are smarter. We just forego the recognition of what we're doing when we do those things, and we just do them blindly. Remember, the one thing that Satan wants is to make is that everyone be convinced that he doesn't exist. That's what he wants the most. Because as long as someone is convinced Satan doesn't exist, Satan doesn't have to worry about him. That's the only difference. But Back then and today, the pleasures are the same. The technology changed, but the pleasures are the same. And he knows how to get us. So that's what they were after. Jezebel offered them that, with King Ahab, and that's why the epitaph is used here, to, des- uh, to, to the epithet is, is used here to design this particular woman. Now we don't really know who she is, but definitely some woman there. What is she saying? Well, we can just imagine. You have all these guilds require you to work. Wouldn't it be nice if someone in the church could stand up and say, you men have kids. You women have kids. You have to take care of your families. Well, given that we know as Christians that those gods are false gods, they're not really gods, it doesn't matter if you offer them something. It's not important. You're not doing anything wrong. You're taking care of your kids. Of course you can do that. God is good. God is loving. God understands. He loves you just the way you are. You don't have to worry about anything. Something to that effect would have been said and you would have willing ears. Wouldn't that be nice to be able to go work, make money, and come and worship at all at the same time? It'd be very nice. Again, what happened? The teaching of the Council of Jerusalem was ignored. Christians took it upon themselves to define what is good and what is evil. They decided, I know better. This is the only place in the book of Revelation where Christ designates himself as the Son of God, presumably setting himself against the designation of Apollo, the son of Zeus, and the emperor being the Son of God. He's basically saying, don't fool yourself. There's only one Son of God, and it is me. So you are afraid of, for your livelihood. You're afraid that if you don't compromise, you won't be able to live, as if the emperor, or as if these false gods will provide you for what you need. But I've taught you the Our Father, I've taught you the prayer, That says, Give us today our daily bread. That's a prayer I taught you, and it cannot fail. So then, when we go through this, what do we see? I gave her time to repent, verse 21. Oh, before I get into this, one important point. I know your works, your love, faith, service, patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. It looks pretty good, doesn't it? Love, faith, patient endurance, your latter works exceed the first. Why? Because there is a natural Christian tendency that to, to cover our sins with much good work. I will contracept but I'll give money to the poor, lots of it. I will be generous with my neighbor, I will take care of people, I will share my wealth, but I will contracept. Sorry Charlie, God sees straight through it. People will be impressed. People can't see you contracepting but they'll be impressed. Whoa. He's generous. He's so good. He helps this person. He has that person. He did this. He did that. He did all these wonderful things. They don't see what's hidden. They don't see what's in our heart. God sees. We can't, we cannot claim to receive any glory from a good act when we do not obey the teachings of the church. So, put differently, someone living in a state of moral sin receives no no glory from a good deed none is given him you have to be in the state of grace so learn not to judge based on what people do you need to probe a little bit deeper do they obey the church? They, and how do you know they obey the church? not obey as the people of Ephesus who were by the book with a hard heart, do they love the Pope and are willing to uphold all the teachings of the Church? They may not know all of them, but if they were told about some of them and they found, out, found themselves to be in error, they will immediately apply themselves to correct it. Are they willing to do that? So the Pope and Our Lady... Those are your sure witnesses. Those are your best bet to figure out where someone is. Above and beyond everything else. Now, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her immorality. She refuses to repent of her immorality. God is good. And God is far more good than we can ever imagine him to be. He is far more patient with us than we would be patient with anybody. And sometimes that even irritates us. God, what are you waiting for? What are you just waiting? Why don't you just clear all this mess out there? Why don't you do it right now? We have plans for God. We have very clear idea about what he should be doing and not doing. We have very murky ideas about what we should be doing and not doing. But we know exactly what God should be doing and not doing. That we do. And then the second person whom we know really well what he's supposed to do is Santa Claus. But about, as far as ourselves are concerned, well that's a different story. He gave her time to repent, but she's unwilling. Take that. Heed that message. God will give each and every one of us time to repent. But the time to repent is not infinite. And is not as long as we live. It's obvious, isn't it? His mercy is infinite, but His acts of mercy are not. They're finite. Because He owes us nothing. The other thing I want to point out to you, it is a summary of what is going to come in the following chapters. As I've said to you earlier, there's going to be a section where basically God is giving the world time to repent by sending them warnings and signs. And then when they don't, he moves into punishment. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed. It's a really, it's it's an ironic statement if you think about it. Because part of what they're doing is to throw each, each other on a bed. But this one is a sick bed. What does that mean? Typically, God will punish us through the very sin that we're committing. Because he knows this is the best way to teach us about what has been done and to teach us about his love. There's one, this image that stuck in my mind, but a book on purgatory that my wife read. I've never read it. But in it, apparently, there's this one woman who talked too much and she gossiped all the time and when she ended up in purgatory, she, but she, she, she um, um, uh, converted and then wanted to uh, amend her life, but she ended up in purgatory and in purgatory she was uh, stuck to a uh, frozen piece of rock by her tongue. And then when she wasn't stuck to that frozen piece of tongue, she'd open her mouth and Burning coals would be deposited on her tongue. She was being punished through that through her tongue. So um, I don't know if this is true or not, this is not gospel truth. It stuck with me as a not not about this poor woman, but as a good pattern to examine myself. So that that was a good way to constantly think about which way, what are the areas I need to improve on. So, and here we see it again, it is in her sin that he is going to punish her. The other really important point is that Jesus is accusing the church of what? Not participate in what she's doing. They're not being accused of the fact that they're participating in what Jezebel is doing. They tolerate... Tolerate. That's what their chief sin. Tolerating her. So let me ask you this question. Is God tolerant? Well, it's a trick question, of course. Yeah, he is tolerant. He's very tolerant of those who seek him in truth, in justice, in love, and who who are falling every day. He put up with them. He gets them to get up. He cleans them again. He gives them strength. He helps them because he knows our weaknesses. He knows how little we can do on our own. He's very tolerant of these people. And so should we. So should we. So if you have a friend, a family member, who is maybe away from the church... You need to encourage every small little step they take. If they're Protestant, have them be the best Protestant they can be. Because by becoming the best Protestant they can be, they're this far away from becoming a Catholic. Okay? You have to be patient with one another. You have, you know, a friend who talks too loudly, or who laughs too loudly, or has this kind of annoying thing about him or her. Be be tolerant. right? bear one another in love, as St. Paul says. Bear one another in love. In that sense, God is very tolerant. But obviously, in another sense, when it comes to someone in the church teaching against what his church is teaching, he's intolerant. There's no tolerance for that. Zero. So, If you know a priest who's not faithful to the magisterium, pray for him. He's in great danger. He doesn't know the wrath of God, but he will one day. He needs prayer. If you know people who take, you know, who who are what I call mini-popes. You know them. They know better than the pope what is good and what is bad and what is right and what is wrong. And what to believe and what not to believe. And I have no problem saying the church is wrong here. Alright? Those are the people who God doesn't tolerate very well. So, what is he going to do to her? But she's unwilling, and thus punishment is. So, Jezebel is unwilling to repent, and so, punishment is forthcoming to her. And what is her punishment? He will throw her on a sick bed, meaning what exactly? She's going to be, she's going to suffer physically, right? She's she's going to follow the pain and suffering are, are, are forthcoming. So that we said it that a number of times. Saint Paul said it himself in Corinthians: "Those who receive the, the body and blood of our Lord unworthily, many of you are sick, and some of have, di- have died because you've received the body and blood of our Lord unworthily." So sometimes sickness and disease and illness can be a judgment. Sometimes it's actually a participation and a sharing in the glory of God by actually saving others. And it's hard for us to tell which is which. We don't know. But it can go either way. This pattern, by the way, of warning and punishment that I told you about is very common in Scripture. It is a very... A common pattern that we find in the Old Testament, for instance, it's found in Hosea chapter 9, in Jeremiah chapter 3, in Ezekiel chapter 23. So, Hosea 9, Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 23. It's also found all throughout Isaiah. It will repeat itself in chapter 18 of the book of Revelation when we see the punishment that befalls Babylon. The passage of St. Paul I just mentioned to you is found in, the fir- in his first letter to the Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through 29. There's an important question here that we should ask, which is, are the children her natural offspring or those who have unreservedly embraced the antinomian doctrines of of their spiritual mother? In other words, when he says, I will strike her children dead, are those her physical children or are those her spiritual children? The theologians are kind of... um, can go either way. I, I think, as, as, as is often the case in Catholic theology, it isn't neither or, it is both. And we can, we can take, uh, there are a number of references in Scripture to support both. So, in order to support the first one, which is that her physical children are stricken dead, we can um, go, for instance, to Genesis chapter 9, verse 25 and following, where the firstborn of the Egyptians are stricken dead. Why? Because of the sins of their fathers. Okay. We find it also in um, I'm sorry Genesis 9:25 is actually uh, Noah. If you recall, Ham, his second son, broke the covenant, and Noah, when he recovered from uh, being drunk. Cursed not Ham, but Canaan, his son. So the curse went to Canaan, who didn't do anything, yet Ham was responsible. So some of you may be thinking, well, how could that be just? How could that be just? Well, you all find it natural that physical harm can befall a parent or a child. Right? Earthquakes happen, car accidents happen, Fire happened, a bunch of other things happen. Sometimes the kids are hit, sometimes the parents are hit, right? The really interesting thing is that when we move over to the spiritual side, we have resistance in accepting that the same law applies. Why? Because we don't understand the physical one. We think the physical one happened randomly. God has this big button that he pressed on, that says on, world, universe, on. He pressed on it, and now he's sitting in front of this you know, 128 feet wide LCD monitor, and he's just watching what's going on, eating popcorn and enjoying himself. That's how we think of God. He's got nothing to do with all these seemingly random events. But if I were to ask you to define what randomness is, you'd be hard-pressed to do so. In fact, it's a metaphysical concept. It's very difficult to define randomness. So whether it's the physical world or the spiritual world, no difference. So if, as a parent, you don't feed your child, and your child dies of malnutrition, were you responsible for the death of that child? Would anybody be, find that strange that the parents be held responsible? Or that the child died because of the fact that the parents did not do what they were supposed to do? Would anybody find that strange? Why is it then in this virtual realm we find that strange? That the children will die because of the sins of their parents? How is that any different? It's no difference. But I tell you why we resisted. We resisted because of the sense of responsibility that it holds us. It holds us to. My behavior, my spirituality, my living the faith has a direct impact on my children. I'm responsible. That's what we have a hard time with, but that's how it goes. We're family. We're family. The other thing I would say to you is that oftentimes we stop at the physical death, what we call the first death. But keep, remind yourself every day your responsibility as a parent is not first and foremost to make your son a doctor or your, do- or your daughter an engineer or a, a spacewalker or... Whatever. All these are wonderful things. They're great. Your first duty is to get them to heaven. That's your first duty. Never mind when they die. What matters is where they're going to be after they die. And as a parent, you should be glad if your child dies at 18 and he's a saint in heaven versus your child living to be 110 and ending up in hell. That's the Christian outlook. That's what we have to have. If we have that outlook, then none of that would surprise us. None of that would find... We wouldn't find any of that to be strange. We'd find it actually very natural and very normal. That's why this text is challenging us, is because we're too attached to this world. And not enough attached to the world to come. So, other references I'll give you very quickly. Exodus 12.29 where the Lord smites the firstborn of the Egyptians, Exodus 20, chapter verse 5, Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, all these references support the notion that parents are responsible for their children. Deuteronomy 28, Levit- Le- Leviticus 26, 1 Kings 21, 17-29, and 2 Kings 9, 30-37. In particular, those two references are important because there we see the death of Ahab's 70 sons because of his sins against Naboth at Jezebel's instigation. So she instigated her husband to sin against this man Naboth, and as a result his sons died. However, there's also the other side of the equation. It is also true that the term children refers to her followers so for instance we find that in Isaiah chapter 57 very clearly in John the Gospel of St. John chapter 8 there the Lord is talking to the Pharisees and he tells them you are the children of your father the devil now clearly he's not talking physically here likewise in the second letter of John chapter 1 where he, he he is writing to the elect lady and her children again this particular lady has virtual children. And then in 1 Peter 5.13, the same thing. So effectively, I think that it can go either way. Now, which way did it go, I don't know, but I would not be surprised if it went both ways. Jesus promises those who hold fast to what they have, those who conquer and who keep his works until the end, power over the nation. Now, that doesn't mean power as in, you know, I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator. I'm going to go and destroy and blow up everybody who doesn't agree with me. The power that is in mind here comes from Psalm 2, which I would recommend you read. It's a messianic psalm. It was understood messianically since about 90 B.C., so before the coming of Christ. Psalm 2 was always looked at a messianic psalm. What we understand here is that the staff that they were given really is the staff of a shepherd. And the staff of a shepherd was lined or covered with some kind of metal. It was made of wood but covered with metal and it's, it had two purposes. The first one is to lead and the second is to ward off the attacks of marauding beasts. So that's what he means when he says, I will give you power of nations, you will break them. What will you break? You will break the resistance, their opposition, the refusal of the word of God. You will effectively do what I told my apostles to do in the Great Commission. Go forth and make disciples of all nations." So that's the judgment that Christ... this is the ruling that Christ has in mind, because remember when he told his disciples, uh, the world, the rulers of the world, lord on those who follow them. It will not be among you. Let the one who serve be the one who lead. That's what he still has in mind. So what he's saying to them is that, simply by being faithful to the teaching of my church and holding to what you've been given, just by doing that, I will give you the nations. What sense do you get out of this whole picture? You get a sense that Christ is in control, don't you? He's in command. There isn't not one bit of pessimism, not one bit of despair, not one bit of sense that we're losing the battle. It's quite the opposite. That's how Christ sees it, and if we are to be imitators of Christ, we ought to see it exactly the same way. Christ also promises to give those who are victorious the morning star. The best explanation of the morning star is that it is Christ himself. Christ speaks of himself as the morning star in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. He's also described so in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And he's also described as the morning star in Numbers, Chapter 24, verse 14 through 20, in the prophecy of Balaam, the fourth and most important prophecy of Balaam, is that the star of David, that's why we speak of the star of David, it is the star of David that shall rise, indicating the the star, indicating Christ. And that's why those uh, magis followed the star, because it was prophesied. Yet there is also another aspect to this, and I think this is a very profound one also, very important. The morning star refers to the Roman Empire, and to Rome in particular. Why? Because Venus, the planet Venus, as you know, is a very bright planet, and it appears early in the morning as a very bright star. It was called the morning star. And early on, it was associated with the glory of Rome. In fact, temples by Roman generals were built for Venus. They had a star on their flag. And the Roman emperors believed that they were descendant of the gods. So you know the notion that these people today say that we're coming from extraterrestrials? Have you heard of this before? Some people who say, we've, yeah, well, nothing is new under the sun. The Romans were there already. All right? They were pretty successful at it, too, in terms of uh, making money out of it. So when he says, I will give you the morning star, I understand this also to mean that even though you're weak, even though you have those guilds who are against you, even though you're in a city where you are really in the middle of an econ- economic hub that belongs to the Roman Empire, so in all appear- to all appearances, you're the weak party and they're the strong party. Guess what I'm going to do? I am going to give you the morning star, Rome. And guess where the church has her seat? Rome. That's why we call ourselves the Roman Catholic Church. Because in that appellation, there is the victory of Christ. The perennial victory of Christ on the world and on Satan. He took the seat of Satan, his throne, pardon, and turned it into his own. What an irony. And guess what? He keeps on doing the same thing over and over again throughout the centuries. So, never lose hope. Victory is ours we have to persevere and wait but it is ours god bless you okay so any questions about the the lecture the talk tonight yes the the question is what are we basing what am i basing myself on in relation in regards to the discussion about the name that God gave us. It is based on uh, one particular passage in scripture, which I don't have with me right now, but I believe it is the parents of Samson. An angel appeared to the parents of Samson to to foretell his birth. And then they asked him his name. And they said, what is your name? And the angel answered back and said, why do you wish to know my name? It is marvelous, too marvelous to be said, meaning that he could not communicate his name to them. It is based on that and on uh, further reflections on the angels and on on, on their names. Yes, good question. If a priest is not following the church teachings, why can't we tell them? Why can't we? Who said we couldn't? As a matter of fact, we should the only thing though that will caution you about is how to do it you have to choose the right the right way um... those of you who are married know you know that there are times when you can say something to your spouse and there are times when you're better off not (laughs) well it's the same thing with a priest or with actually not only a priest, any other member of your family the same thing You have to choose your moment. However, don't despair. Uh, Scott Hahn tells a story where he was once in the church and he was basically saying, the priest was saying that St. Peter made a mistake. St. Peter thought Christ was coming and he made a mistake and he misled a whole bunch of people. Which is a very common thing among some people to believe that Peter and Paul made a mistake expecting the end of the world to come and never came. So after the Mass, he went into the sacristy and said, Father, Yes, what can I do for you? He says, "Well, I've studied this extensively, and I believe that if you don't understand this physically, but you understand it sacramentally, you will see that actually Peter was not mistaken. The second coming of Christ came with the destruction of the temple, and ushered the the new uh, the new uh, covenant." And he explained it further. And the priest said, "Is that it? Do you have anything else to say?" No, Father. He was kind of walking out thinking, you know, Lord, I tried. And as he was going out of the church, the priest who was going to lead the novena stood up and said, uh, excuse me, this gentleman told me, and he proceeded to say that he made a mistake, and he corrected it right there. So you never know. But I would say, yeah, you have to speak. If you know what you're... And, but don't use a two-by-four, that's all. Yes? Because he speaks... Yeah, the question is, what was the point of mentioning the fact that if you were to look from afar, you'd see the citadel as a throne? Because Christ tells them, "I know where you live, where Satan's throne is." Oh, that's right. Let's try to understand why is he saying that. Because there are some physical characteristics that lead us to understand that that's how it looked, or that's how it plus that's how it behaved. That's why. Any other question? The question is: Was the issue of contraception touched upon by the people of that time? The answer is, as far as I know, yes it's a perennial issue, it's nothing new. Uh, What is new is the technology behind it, but uh, from times immemorial, people will try to avoid having a child. Likewise. In fact, uh, what about abortion? In the book of Didache, which is dated to be 60 AD to maybe 90 AD, which is used to teach the catechumens, it is plainly stated that abortion is a crime. Uh, if it was stated it was a pra- if it's a crime it is to indicate to those who are being catechized and catechized people that this practice is a crime yes Zeus was the father of the gods he's like the greatest god He's the greatest god. he was uh, his symbol was the sun no his symbol was not the sun that's Apollo. I'm sorry but he's the father of all the gods he's the most powerful of them all so in contrast Christ says I am the son of God the real God Yes. You know, secular, you know. Yes. The question is how do we take the lesson from the guild and apply it in our lives today? What is our moral responsibility and our moral obligation in dealing with the world? For instance, um, you may have you, your, your life insurance may be with a company that is donating money to support abortion. Uh, are you responsible? Should you pull away from it? Should you not buy goods from China? Should you not buy goods from a company that is supporting this or that? Very simple. You don't have to complicate your lives. Your moral responsibility is direct. If you, the company is asking you to do something that directly, your own action, contravenes the teaching of the church, you cannot do it. Point blank. Now, if you're actually buying goods from China who is actually from a Chinese company who's act- but that Chinese company is in China and China is persecuting the church, should you not buy from China? No. I mean, no, yes, it doesn't matter. It may not be related, it may not be relevant. You're not under moral obligation in that particular instance. Because the mere fact of you buying a good doesn't in effect constitute a violation of the teaching of the church. You have to look at the immediate good at immediate action first. Now, if you know that this immediate action may—if you know for certainty, with certainty—that this particular action may lead to this other particular action, and the end result being evil, you must abstain from it. If you're certain of it. But beyond that, you have—you bought stocks in a mutual. You have a—you bought a stock in a mutual account that has stocks from this company who's actually supporting abortion. Should you? Not, you can't. Right? You understand? So your your responsibility is to your direct and immediate actions. Uh, if you're working in a pharmacy and the pharmacist wants to obligate you to dispense contraception, you must refuse. You cannot, as a Catholic, be a pharmacy, work in a pharmacist, and dispense contraception, because that particular act in and of itself is evil, and you doing it means you have violated the teachings of the church and you've committed a grave sin. you understand? Okay. Yes. If you, if, as a Catholic, if you own a store, you cannot sell contraception. You cannot sell pornography. You cannot sell anything that is fundamentally immoral. Yes. What about liquor? No. Uh, again, liquor is an interesting case because in of itself, having a, a cup of whiskey, I mean drink of whiskey or or a wine, or a glass of beer, is not sinful. It can lead to sin, but it is not sinful. It's, it's, mm, mm. So therefore, fundamentally, you can be safe. Now, remember what I just to- told you earlier about the second step? If, you're, if, you, if you own a liquor store in a community, if you open a liquor store in a community made of alcoholic, it's a different story, but I mean, it's, it's far-fetched, few people will do that, right? But liquor, casino, these type of things are, are diff- more, harder to evaluate, but the fundamental law apply in all those cases. Very good.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.